for the past several weeks now, we have been zeroed in on the very important subject of heaven. And we have, we began by doing what I, I described as recalibration. We recalibrated our heavenly focus. Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 remind us, If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And then notice what Paul says, Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. You may remember the words of Harry Blameyers who said, A prime mark of the Christian mind is that it cultivates the eternal perspective. This morning in our Veritas class, I focused for a minute or two on the importance of thinking Christianly. What does it mean to develop a Christian mind? And Blameyers just takes us to the end of the road by saying, if you're interested, if you have a desire, if you have a passion to think Christianly, then learn to develop an eternal mindset. Set your mind on heaven develop a heavenly focus next in our series we focused on recalibrating our heavenly longings it's one thing to focus on heaven and to admit the 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 great reality of heaven but the next thing we need to do is recalibrate our affections recalibrate our longings we learned in this section of the study that each of us each of our hearts has deep desires and deep longings and we learn that by, by nature, the human heart grows restless when it denies its true longings. When we set those longings aside, when we push those longings away, when we deny those longings, it results in depression and discouragement and times of difficulty in our lives. Augustine prays this pivotal, pivotal prayer. He says, Thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in thee the human heart then finds rest in god alone and also in the hope of heaven there's a third area that needs recalibrating namely our views of heaven and that was our focus last week and thus far we have learned two important lessons as we as we reorient our views as we recalibrate our views First, we learned a negative lesson. We said that discernment, biblical discernment, demands that we discard unbiblical views concerning heaven. And trust me, there are unbiblical views from Christian writers and non-Christian writers that continue to really invade the marketplace of ideas. And so when we come face to face with an idea that doesn't line up to scripture, what do we do? We discard it. We get rid of it. And such an action demands integrity. It demands courage because some of us have, have cherished views. Some of us have learned from a very young age certain things about heaven that don't match the biblical record. And that being the case, we need to discard those views. Such a point of obedience demands strong courage. And then we also learned last week that discernment demands that we also affirm what the scripture says about heaven. Negatively, we discard what doesn't line up, but positively, discernment demands that we affirm what the Bible says about heaven. And so I want to continue to develop that theme where we left off last week by setting forth four very important foundational truths. Number one, heaven is the dwelling place of God. Heaven is the dwelling place of God. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy. The fourth book in the Pentateuch, Deuteronomy chapter 26. And just by way of introduction, I want you to see what the Bible says about this important reality. Deuteronomy 26 verse 15. Look down from your holy habitation, from heaven... And bless your people Israel and the ground that you have given us as you swore to our fathers, a land flowing with milk and honey. Here we see that that heaven is where God resides. Heaven is the dwelling place of God. Wayne Grudem helpfully adds, heaven is the place where God most fully makes known his presence 
to bless. Simply put, the heavenly place, the heavenly dwelling is a holy place. It is only fitting, you see, that a holy God inhabits this very holy place. If you want to turn with me to the book of Second Chronicles, a few books over. Look with me at Second Chronicles, and I should warn you, we're going to be looking at a lot of scriptures this morning. Second Chronicles chapter 30, verse 17. Or rather, 27. 2 Chronicles chapter 30, verse 27. Then the priests and the Levites arose and they blessed the people and their voice was heard. And their prayer came to what? To his holy habitation, which is in heaven. Once again, we see that God dwells in heaven. He is a holy God and he dwells in a holy place. I would add to this, if you'd flip to the very end of your Bible, to Revelation chapter 21, a great reality concerning our heavenly home that is probably not the most important thing or the most popular thing in our postmodern culture. I want you to read it with me in Revelation chapter 21, verse 27. But nothing, speaking of heaven, nothing unclean will enter it. Nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. One of my responsibilities and one of my very important pleasures when I preach the word of God, is to be sure that every person listening to the word of God is confident that they are going to heaven. And I've probably said this two or three dozen times, but as every good Puritan pastor would affirm, there's always someone that's unconverted in the sanctuary. And so I always assume there's, there is at least one or a handful or more people who are here this morning who are not converted. And you need to hear these words this morning that if you are unclean, That if your sins have not been covered by the blood of the Lamb, you will not go to heaven when you die. And you need to hear that from a a pastor who is concerned about you, a pastor pastor who is concerned about your soul. And we'll continue to develop this as we continue our study this morning. In Revelation 21, verse 8, one chapter previous, the Bible says, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, As for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. You may be thinking this morning, oh boy, I was looking for a positive message on heaven. I'm looking for something encouraging about heaven. Well, as my Puritan heroes used to say, you have to, you have to wound the sinner with the law. And once the sinner has been sufficiently wounded with the law, once the sinner recognizes that, wow, I fall into one of those categories. Perhaps you're here this morning and you say, I'm a liar. Or you're here and you're sexually immoral or you're an idolater or you're a murderer or you've never murdered with your hands, but you've murdered in your heart. And Jesus says it's the exact same thing, doesn't he? The word of God says such a person will never enter heaven. You must be wounded with the law. And once you are sufficiently wounded with the law, the preacher can pour on the balm of gospel grace. And we will see how it is that such a person that is described in verse 8 has the hope of entering heaven when that person dies. So we've seen that heaven is the dwelling place of God. That the dwelling place is not fit for the impure. We also recognize that the dwelling place is eternal. So says 2 Corinthians 5 verse 1. But I want you to see a second foundational truth. And that is that while God's dwelling place is indeed in heaven. He also inhabits the whole earth. Our God dwells in heaven. But he also dwells or inhabits the whole earth. Back to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6 verse 3. This pivotal passage that we read in chapter 6 where King Uzziah dies in verse 1. And Isaiah sees the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. 
Each had six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. You see, God not only lives in heaven, but his dwelling place is also throughout the whole earth. Isaiah chapter 66 verse 1 says this. It's interesting. The earth is his footstool. The earth is his footstool. Third, I want you to see that God's dwelling place, the Bible says, is called the third heaven. God's dwelling place is called the third heaven. Look at it this way. The the atmosphere, if I can talk about science for a moment, the atmospheric heaven or the first heaven is what we might consider the sky or the atmosphere. We look up and we see the first heaven. But the second heaven is where we find the moon and the stars and the planets. Those of you interested in astronomy and you're interested in studying those things, that is where those amazing things reside that God created in the second heaven. The third heaven now is where God dwells with his holy angels and all the saints who have died. Those of you who have loved ones who have gone to be with the Lord, they presently reside in the third heaven. Please remember, there is an error that some teach referred to as soul sleep. Some believe that when you, you die, you you. You go to a resting place and you sleep and you don't go to heaven until Christ returns. It's as a grievous theological error. And so every time I have the, the opportunity to officiate at a memorial service, and when the person who has died has possessed faith in Christ, what a, what a pleasure it is to say, absent from the body, present with the Lord. The moment this person, the moment this man or woman or boy or girl takes their last breath, if they were in Christ, we can affirm with the Apostle Paul, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Is that indeed an amazing hope? What an amazing hope that we can glory in and rejoice in. And so the third heaven is where God dwells with all of his holy angels and all of God's elect. And here's what's an amazing to realize. That is that the first two heavens... The Bible says the first two heavens will pass away. Look with me back in the New Testament, second, second Peter, second Peter, chapter three. And I can already sense as you're turning there this morning, I need to slow down because I'm getting I'm getting worked up. I'm getting excited. Right. Isn't that the way it's supposed to be? Right, Galen? Let's get let's get to work. Second Peter, chapter three, verse 10. Notice, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The first heaven and the second heaven pass away. They're gone. They're done with. What remains? The heavenly abode. Notice, finally, the fourth foundational truth, that heaven as we've already indicated, is the future dwelling place of every one of God's elect. Every one of the saints go to heaven. John chapter 14. It's a passage that is, is preached at many, many, many memorial services and funerals. Where Jesus says that he's going to prepare a place for us. It's an amazing reality that Jesus is going to prepare a place for us. The saints shall do more than just dwell in heaven, the Bible says. The saints shall worship God in all his glory. I want to read for you, and you can make reference to this if you wish, in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. The Bible says, and I... After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. That's the Lord Jesus Christ, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying with a loud voice, salvation belongs to God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, Jesus and all the angels were standing around the throne and all the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God saying, Amen. 
blessed and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. 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 I believe this is the easy part of understanding the great reality of heaven. These four foundational truths, these are basic biblical realities concerning heaven. But there is a third component of discernment that we need to consider. And this is where for some of you, it might be a little bit challenging. And so as we've learned, we want to discard what's unbiblical and we want to affirm what is biblical. And so discernment now demands that we distinguish between the intermediate heaven and the new heavens and the new earth. First, notice with me. And some of these categories may be new for you this morning. The first I want you to see is the intermediate heaven. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, that we are of good courage. And Paul says, I prefer to be absent from the body and home with the Lord. And so when a Christ follower dies, as we have already indicated, that Christ follower goes to be with the Lord in heaven. But where that Christ follower goes is what theologians refer to as the intermediate heaven or the intermediate state. This place is what Randy Alcorn describes as, quote, a transitional period between our past lives on earth and our future resurrection to life to live on the new earth. And I'm going to read that again in just a moment. Because what Randy Alcorn helps us with is of paramount importance. I want to encourage you, if you enjoy a good book, that the book you need to read soon is the book Heaven by Randy Alcorn. I can see some of you shaking your heads. You either have read it or you're getting ready to read it. Over the years, I have read, I've lost track of how many books I've read on heaven. And outside of of what Jonathan Edwards has taught me, I can't think of anyone else who has helped me more than Randy Alcorn in his book on heaven. I remember the first time I read it. It challenged the socks off me. And I realized as a younger pastor that I had slowly... And carefully imported some categories into my mind, into my heart, into my Christian life concerning heaven that were not biblical. And what Randy Alcorn does is he he helps to get rid of what is not biblical. And he helps you to affirm and to embrace what is biblical about heaven. Notice again, the intermediate heaven is a transitional period between our past lives on earth and our future resurrection to life on the new earth. And so by definition, when we speak of the intermediate heaven, anything that is intermediate, you see, is temporary. When we think of the intermediate heaven, by definition, the intermediate state is temporary. That is to say, and get ready to just have all your categories explode right now. The intermediate heaven is temporary, as I have said, and it is not, then, our final destination. That's where everything changes. The intermediate heaven is not our final destination. The people of God, all of God's elect, are destined to live for all eternity, listen, as resurrected beings on a resurrected earth. What the scripture refers to as the new earth or the new Jerusalem. Now there's an important, I have in my notes, I've referred to it as an important sidebar. In other words, I want to share with you a footnote. And this is something that I have learned with the help of Randy Alcorn and others. That we need to to tuck away in the back of our minds. Before we look at the new earth, we need to ask, why is it? And trust me, there are many people who struggle with the notion of a new earth. They've been taught all their lives that when you die, you go to heaven, and that's where you live for all eternity, up there. That is not true. It's the intermediate heaven. And so we need to ask, why is it that so many people just 
Just resist, resist the notion, the biblical idea that we will, in the final analysis, live and reside on the new earth. I'm convinced that the primary reason for embracing this biblical reality, the reality that heaven will ultimately be a, a physical place. Now, those of you who are in my class this morning, this is where I said, get ready for this section in the sermon. It's going to address something. There are people who struggle with the notion of, of heaven on earth as it will. And there's a reason for this. The reason is owing to large measure to Greek philosophy. You say, Pastor, I'm not interested in Greek philosophy. Most people aren't, are they? However, most of us who are not interested in Greek philosophy have been influenced by it. And so Randy Alcorn has has coined a helpful phrase that I want to unpack just for a few minutes. This is one of those $97 words, and it's a word that Randy really invented, and I think it's a good word. It's the word Christoplatonism. I told you it was a $97 word, right? You know what Christo is. That's Christ. And you know what Platonism is. That's from the Greek philosopher Plato. And so I'd encourage you to jot that down. Christoplatonism. And so Plato, the Greek philosopher, here's what he believed. He believed that, that material things, including the human body as well as the earth, are evil. And that's important to recognize. Plato believed that the, that the earth... And things that are material and our bodies are evil, while immaterial things, or what we would say spiritual things, are good. That includes heaven. This view became known, surprisingly enough, as Platonism. Platonism. That the physical is bad, the physical is evil, including our bodies, and the good is the spiritual, which resides in heaven. And so as Platonism spread, it began to spread in Greek culture and it began to spread eventually to the earth. And people began to embrace the quote-unquote spiritual view that human spirits were better off without bodies. How many of and I want to have you just raise your hand. How many of you have heard the notion that when someone dies, they just their spirit goes to heaven and they live, they live in a disembodied spirit for all eternity? Have you heard that? You know where that comes from now? That comes from Greek philosophy. That comes from Platonism, and it's not true. So some have embraced this so-called spiritual view that human spirits were better off with, without bodies, and that heaven you see as a disembodied state. And so the Platonist rejects the biblical truth that heaven is a physical realm And they ultimately spiritualize passages that speak of resurrected people living on a resurrected new earth. Listen to what Randy Alcorn says. He says, if we believe even subconsciously that bodies and the earth and material things are unspiritual, even evil, then we will inevitably reject or spiritualize any biblical revelation about our bodily resurrection or physical characteristics of the new earth. Now, whenever a pastor steps away from his notes, it's all, I usually think it's a bad thing. I'm going to step away from my notes just for a minute. I want to tell you a story. As my son and I sat in front of the fireplace this morning I read him a few passages from Revelation 20 and 21 that I would be preaching this morning. And as I shared with him my excitement for heaven, we began to talk about it. I said, Nathan, when when God's people go to heaven, we will eat, we will drink, we will recreate, we will play, we will labor, we will work, we will serve, we will worship. And this is my favorite part. I believe we... We'll play golf. Now, why is it that anyone would, what? By the way, I believe, and and I picked this up from Randy Alcorn. I'll give him the credit. We will drink coffee. You say, wait a minute. Yeah, there's amen to that. Now, Dan is amening, and a few others are amening, but I, I can guarantee you, based on my experience in the past, that some of you are folding your arms saying, wait a minute, heaven's where you go in a disembodied state, and there's no need to eat or drink anything. There's no need to play. There's no need to do any of this. We're just going to, right? 
That is not the biblical portrait of heaven. That is not the biblical portrait of heaven. Herman Ritterboss says this, We cannot understand biblical revelation, human history, or the events of our own lives if we don't grasp God's plan for the new heavens and the new earth. And I would argue that when you begin to grasp God's plan for the new earth, then and only then will you be really, really, really excited to go to heaven. I am really, really excited to go to heaven. And so I want to focus on these remaining moments on the new earth with you. And I think you'll be encouraged by it. Once again, Randy Alcorn says, because scripture makes it clear that Jesus is preparing a place for us. And because God's kingdom will come to earth and a physical resurrection awaits us, there is no reason to spiritualize or allegorize all the earthly descriptions of heaven. And believe me, there are earthly descriptions of heaven. That's what we want to do right now. Notice the first of several things. Number one, the new heavens and the new earth are a promise from a holy God. We turn back with me to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 65. Isaiah chapter 65. And would you direct your attention to verse 17 just for a moment? If you're reading in the English Standard Version, and I believe most other translations have a, a, a subheading here entitled, The New Heavens and the New Earth. Notice what Scripture says. For behold, I create, what? New heavens and a new earth for the former things that we've already discussed shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. Look over at Isaiah chapter 66, verse 22. For as the new heavens and the new earth... That I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. Second Peter, if you want to follow along, Second Peter chapter three, verse thirteen. And this really picks up from where we learn that the first heaven and the second heaven would pass away. But then look at verse thirteen. But according to his promise. May I encourage you every time you see the word promise in scripture. That would be the time you get a big smile on your face. Because did you know that God can't lie? It's not within his nature to lie. And I've said this many times that I, I, I'm convinced that many of you have the same second, second grade Sunday school teacher that I did. When she said, God is omnipotent. He can do anything. That is not true. God cannot do anything. He can do anything within the counsel of his holy will. Let me illustrate. God cannot worship another God. Now you understand, those of you that think, I'm sacrilegious. I said God couldn't do anything. God cannot worship another God. He just can't do it. God cannot tell a lie. And so we define omnipotence as God can do anything in accordance with his holy will. And so when we see the word promise, we instantly have a smile on our face. Because here's the promise. According to his promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. Flip over a few pages back to Revelation chapter 21. While you're turning there, most of you know I was a youth pastor for, I lost track, eight years. And you know, youth pastors typically will ask at the end of the summer, boys and girls, what do you want to study this next year? You know what every youth group says? Every youth group, Revelation. We want to study Revelation. That's all we want. So Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. This is the first great reality that the new heavens and the new earth are promised by God. This is something we can, we can cash our chips on. This is something we can bank on. That one day God will set forth a new heaven and a new earth. Number two, 
the new Jerusalem, new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth shall come down from heaven to earth. Continue on in Revelation 21, verse 2. And I saw the holy city. And I don't know about you, if you have an imagination, this, you imagine this happening because it will happen. I saw a holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. This is the intermediate heaven. Coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God, we've seen that, is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. That's one of the new covenant promises, if you remember from Ezekiel chapter 36 and Jeremiah chapter 31. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Move forward to verse 10, Revelation twenty-one ten, And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. As long as you're in Revelation, will you go back over to Revelation 3? Did I remind you we're going to have lots of scriptures this morning? Revelation chapter 3, verse 12. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I'll write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven and on my own new name. John MacArthur has written a a terrific book entitled The Glory of Heaven. Some of you have read it. Dr. MacArthur says the new heaven and the new earth are seen as, as blending together in a great kingdom that incorporates both realms. The paradise of eternity is thus revealed as a magnificent kingdom where both heaven and earth unite in glory that surpasses the limits of the human imagination and the boundaries of earthly dimensions. That is why many of you are sitting here this morning. You say to yourself, I can't even picture it. That's why MacArthur says that it's beyond the boundaries of human imagination and earthly dimension. Anthony Hokema. It says, on the new earth, therefore, we hope to spend eternity enjoying its beauties, exploring its resources. Now, notice, think Plato for a minute. What would Plato say about this? No, 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 no. No, 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 no. All the physical is bad, and that's what many Christians have been taught, I'm convinced. But Hokema has nailed it. We will explore the beauty, explore its resources, and using its treasures to the glory of God. Since God will make the new earth his dwelling place, and since where God dwells, there heaven will be, we shall then continue to be in heaven while we are on the new earth. For heaven and earth will then no longer be separated as they are now, think intermediate heaven, but shall be made as one. Number three, God's people, as we've already seen, shall dwell with him in New Jerusalem for all eternity. That is, we will dwell on the new earth with all of God's elect worshiping God for all eternity. Revelation 21 3, once again, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold the dwelling place, and God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. The fourth and final component of the new earth is where our imaginations will be stretched beyond capacity. And it is simply this, that the new Jerusalem shall be beautiful beyond description. It will be beautiful beyond description. Turn to Revelation 21 once again. And I debated on how to walk you through this truth. And I think the best way to do it for our limited time this morning is I would just like to read beginning in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 9 and have you pay close attention to the stunning beauty 
of what this place will be like, speaking of the new Jerusalem. Verse 9, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain, and he showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of the heaven of God. We're all on the same page now, I think. We see this. I remember, and I'm embarrassed to admit this to you. It wasn't until I was probably a junior in my undergraduate program that I saw this and finally began to understand and embrace this for the first time. Why? Because all my life, and it's, it's only my fault, all my life I embraced the, the platonic notion that heaven was pie in the sky, disembodied state, halo, and just perpetual boredom. That is not the biblical portrait of heaven. This is. And so we see this. He carried me away, showed me the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Verse 11, having the glory of God, its radiance like most a rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and the gates 12 angels and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes and the sons of Israel were inscribed and on the east three gates on the north three gates on the south three gates and on the west three gates and on the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the lamb and the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls the city lies four square its length the same as its width and he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper. The second was sapphire. The third was agate. The fourth was emerald. The fifth, onyx. The sixth, carnelian. The seventh, crystallite. The eighth, beryl. The ninth, topaz. The tenth, christophras. The eleventh, jacinth. The, the twelfth, amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each of the gates were made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. Then notice verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. That is Jesus. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light and is the lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. And I don't know about you. This is a moment of transparency, but I'm not a big fan of the night. Is anyone with me? There's something about the morning. So in the winter months, I'm up at 4.30 in the morning. I spend my time with the Lord, and I read my books and pray. And then my next step is out to the garage to hit the treadmill, right? In the dark. Light in the garage, but dark outside. I can see through the windows. And it's only when the sun begins to come through ever so faint. And then it gets lighter and lighter and lighter. And it just does something to my spirit. Is anyone with me? There's something about the morning. In heaven, there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. And nothing unclean will ever enter it, as we saw earlier, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. I want to show you a photograph that I took about five weeks ago. And I want to share an experience that I had. It was a mind-blowing experience. Um, over the course of the last year or so, I've, I've developed just this love. I, I don't know what happened. It just kind of happened haphazardly, I guess. Nothing's haphazard for a Christian, right? Where I ended up one day by myself at Green Lake in North Seattle. And I started walking around Green Lake. And I don't know how many times I've done it since that first time. But the last time I did it, I, I, I had the most amazing time. And so I put my headphones in, I put the best music I can find, put my walking shoes on, and I start to walk. 
and walk and walk. I got about three-fourths of the way around the lake, and I wish I would have taken a picture. And I, I don't know if we, can, if we can dim the lights to see this even better. I, I, I wish I had a picture that reflected exactly the way I felt because right before I took this picture, if you could see what I saw, it just blew me away. I saw a, a couple walking together, holding hands. I saw a mom taking photographs of her child in the child's stroller. I saw other people walking with, with their dogs. It, it, was the mo- it was the most peaceful, amazing time. And I will remember this picture forever. Because I remember right now exactly how I felt. And I know some of you think our pastor's flipped his lid. He's going crazy. But this is what happened. As I'm walking, as I'm listening to my music, as I'm enjoying this, this, this crisp day. It was a lot like it is today. Very cold. Sun shining through. Everything is beautiful. I'm watching my surroundings. I'm, I'm, I'm watching what, what seemed to be peace and harmony. And here's the thought that popped in my mind. I'm one step removed from heaven. We're, we're one step away from being in heaven. I know some of you think, no, 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 no. Remember, don't let the platonic view influence you. Heaven will be a, a physical place. And then the very next thought that popped into my mind is there's only one thing that would make this day as close to perfect as possible. I was all by myself. Because I'd gone to Seattle to spend the day to do some writing in my new favorite coffee shop. Some of you are wondering, oh, now we know where the heaven's going. Okay, I get this. New favorite coffee shop. But I thought to myself, if Jereen and Abby and Nathan were here, it'd be the perfect day. Beauty all around me with my lovely bride, with my two children, listening to my music getting my exercise, doing all the things that I enjoy doing. This is like a foretaste of heaven. And then the platonic view popped into my mind. Think of all those years that I thought heaven was only spiritual, only disembodied saints. We will work, we will play, we will recreate, we will eat, we will drink, we will serve. But most important in everything we do, whether we eat or drink, 1 Corinthians 10 says, we do to the glory of God. Continue on in Revelation chapter 22. And the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal. By the way, we don't spiritualize this. We say there will be a river there flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life and its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed Do any of you hate the curse? I mentioned last week, every time we lose one of our loved ones at Christ Fellowship, this is, this is, I'll do this every every time. I hate the curse because now I miss my friend. The curse will be removed. Jesus will make all things new. But the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, verse 3, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. There will be no more curse. God's people shall serve him and worship him and reign with him for all eternity. As we close this morning, let me make a few closing comments for your encouragement and for your edification. When we recalibrate our views of heaven, you see, several things happen. First, when we recalibrate our views of heaven, we will be filled with joy. We will be filled with joy. Romans chapter 15, verse 13 says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. I went searching for this verse to make this point because it's a verse that contextually is not about heaven. But it fits the context of the subject of heaven. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. When we believe in the new earth, 
the new Jerusalem, it will fill us with with joy, joy that is scarcely imaginable. C.S. Lewis was right when he said, joy is the serious business of heaven. Second thing, when we recalibrate our views of heaven, we are filled with hope. Again, in Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. So we have hope thinking about our heavenly home on the new earth. And we have hope thinking of those who have gone before us, who live presently in the intermediate heaven and will one day live with all God's people on the new earth. It was the Puritan pastor Thomas Goodwin. He died when he was 80 years of age, and he, his son wrote a line about his godly father. He said this about his dad, Thomas Goodwin. He rejoiced in the thoughts that he was dying. I had to stop myself and, and pinch me, pinch myself there. He rejoiced in the thought he was dying. And he was going to have a full and uninterrupted communion with God. I am going, he said, to the three persons with whom I have had communion. It's beautiful. There's a third thing we recognize that when we recalibrate our views of heaven, we become emboldened. Many people you talk to, including many here this morning, have a fear of death. And while it's not, it's not Christian to admit that you're afraid of death, I think most Christians indeed have some measure of fear about death. But this need not be the case because Paul tells us this in 2 Corinthians 5, 8. He says that we are of good courage. I took the time to look that word up and I was hoping for something really mind-blowing. And mind-blowing I got. The Greek word means to be overbold. So we are of good courage. We are overbold. Overbold about what? That if I am in Christ, I will be with Christ And every one of God's elect when I breathe my last breath. Why? Because absent from the body, present with the Lord. Number four, when we recalibrate our views of heaven, it sparks deep humility in our souls. Martin Luther's last preserved writing, his last little piece that he wrote, and he was a voluminous writer, was found on a table after he had died. There is a little scrap of paper that contained a few sentences and ended with these words. Luther wrote, we are beggars. This is the truth, period. And he died. We are beggars. This is the truth. The heavenly home, the the new earth will spark deep humility in our souls. Finally, when we recalibrate our views of heaven our fears that I addressed a moment ago will be utterly extinguished. They'll be taken away. So Jonathan Edwards spent several years the western portion of Massachusetts ministering to, well, Indians. They weren't Native Americans at the time. We call them Native Americans now. He ministered to these dear people, and he loved these dear people. And toward the end of his ministry, he received a call to be the president at what is now Princeton University. And he labored over it. He, he didn't want to go at first, but God called him. And so he obediently went and he went by himself. He left his, his wife and kids in Stockbridge, Massachusetts. And it wasn't too many weeks after he arrived at his new post in Princeton that he began to encourage the student body to receive an inoculation for smallpox. And he felt to be a good example and be a good president. He, he too should get the inoculation for this deadly disease. And the inoculation killed him. And it was moments before he died. He said this to his family. And this has encouraged me so many times over the years when I read these words. Edward's last words were, trust in God and you need not fear. Trust in God and you need not fear. Some of you are familiar with the founder of Moody Bible Institute. I think it's Moody College now, if memory serves me correctly. D.L. Moody, the famous evangelist. And he said this before he died. He said, soon you will read in the newspaper that I am dead. But don't believe it for a moment. I'm more alive than I ever was. 
Isn't that cool? Don't believe it for a moment. So the question for each of us this morning is I would not only encourage you to recalibrate your views of heaven, I would plead with you, I would beg with you, do you know you're going there? It's one thing to recalibrate your views. That's great and that's necessary. But are you going to heaven? Are you numbered among the people that we read about in the book of Revelation who will not enter heaven, who will not spend all eternity on the new earth? And we need to get rid of the American notion that we get to heaven by being good people. We need to get rid of the American notion that we get to heaven by by climbing the ladder of success or giving a certain amount of money to the church. None of those things will get us to heaven. The only thing that gets us to heaven is believing on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then and only then will we be saved. As we, we bank all our hope and future and our trust on the Lord Jesus Christ who hung on a wooden cross and stuck him in a in a tomb for three days. And on the third day, God raised him from the dead. And he gives eternal life to whoever will call out to him. Turn from their sins and turn to Jesus. That's the only way we can receive that eternal life. And we'll celebrate what Jesus said in the gospel this morning when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And so this morning, as we bow in prayer, I would, I would plead with you to, to be certain, to have absolute certainty that when you die, when you breathe your last that you will go to heaven because of simple faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. But Father, thank you for this very, very important reminder in your word about our heavenly home. I thank you for helping us to navigate our way through, through distinguishing between the intermediate heaven and the new heavens and the new earth. God, I pray that each person in this room would look forward to going there. God, I pray that each person would contemplate on what basis they'll be going there, that it's not because of good deeds, it's not because of good works, it's not because we're good people. It's because we've placed our faith and our trust in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So thank you, Jesus, for making the way plain. Thank you for for opening the gates of heaven, for enabling us to, to spend all eternity in heaven all because of your death, burial, and resurrection. So as we come to the table this morning, we celebrate who you are. We celebrate your obedience. We celebrate the gospel. We celebrate our eternal life that we enjoy in Christ and in Christ alone. Amen.